Today, psychiatrist Richard Brown shows us how to use his top four natural therapies for ADHD. Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the editor-in-chief of the Carlite Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Stimulants are first line for ADHD, but as we learned in our last podcast, around half of people with ADHD have other cognitive problems that get in the way of full recovery. Problems like low working memory, slow processing speed, and dyslexia. Richard Brown has spent 45 years in research and practice trying to understand those problems. And today, he talks about natural therapies that improve ADHD and these associated problems. ADHD has many causes, um, child abuse and neglect, environmental toxins, etc. It's not just a genetic disorder. Do you think uh, any of the varied causes speak to particular CAM treatments that you use for ADHD? In our book, we summarize a lot of the data on uh, like certain minerals and vitamins. And there's much more interest in that in other countries, like in Great Britain, in their teen offenders. They supplement them with B vitamins and minerals and fish oils, and it reduces their aggression and improves their attention. There's some data from the U.S. on that, too. I would say certainly pycnogenol. So pycnogenol is a patented extract of the French maritime pine bark tree. It's very high in polyphenols. It works in children. I've not had good results with it in adults. And the other things that are herbs for ADHD that I use are usually high in polyphenols. That's a British company that has the patent, and they've done extensive studies. I'm looking um, right now, and it looks like Now makes it. N-O-W is... They carry it. Oh, okay. It's made by a British company that has the patent. But they franchise it out to different companies who put their name on it. I take it that's good because then you're assured that it's made the right way. Exactly. Exactly. But the price is usually high. They have really good plant chemists. Okay. And the Germans, the German industry has really good plant chemists because plant chemistry is more complex than synthetic pharmaceuticals because you have so many similar compounds that are related within one plant. They have funded several studies and then other groups have done independent studies on pycnogenol and probably the polyphenols activate the brain a little bit like some of the polyphenols in green tea or chocolate or ginkgo. But also, pycnogenol seems to correct an imbalance of copper and zinc that especially boys with ADHD can have. Here's the research on pycnogenol. This pine bark extract has two small randomized placebo-controlled trials in ADHD. One was positive, involving children at a dose of 0.5 milligrams per pound per day. The other was negative, involving adults at about twice the pediatric dose one milligram per pound per day. The negative study is not very informative, though. It's a failed study because the active treatment arm, which was methylphenidate 45 milligrams a day, did not separate from placebo either. So the evidence is not definitive, but a larger trial is underway. And now, a preview of the CME quiz. Earn CME through the link in the show notes. Which treatment does Dr. Brown recommend for dyslexia? A. Pycnogenol. B. 
racetams, C, clonidine, and D, rhodiola rosea. Next, Dr. Brown talked about his experience with the herb rhodiola rosea. There's a caveat here. Rhodiola rosea has not been directly studied in ADHD specifically, but this herb did improve cognition and attention in controlled trials of other populations. So the only evidence we really have in ADHD is Dr. Brown's anecdotal evidence. We have had amazing cases with rhodiola rosea helping attention. That's better known for depression, right? It has been used for depression. However, what it has been studied most for in its history is as an adaptogen. In other words, helping people respond better to stress, either internal or external, including toxins. Since we first published a paper on it with a former space researcher from the former Soviet Union, we published that paper in 2002. And a science review journal called Science News did a review article. And then you got this incredible like curve that is still exponentially rising of research on rhodiola. And that triggered research on it for, among other things, longevity. But it had been studied for affecting norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin, as well as other things. What people don't understand in this chapter in one of our books on this is space is the most stressful environment human beings have ever gone in. So even sending up people made of the right stuff Often within three days, they're having arrhythmias from stress, and they're making really bad judgment. And there's no one who's going to easily come up and save you. (laughs) So the Soviets spent incredible amounts of time, especially for years, they did long-term spaceflight and saw the consequences. So they developed this formula of which rhodiola is part. And as part of their research, they did incredibly difficult studies of different kinds of mental problems and showed that rhodiola was far better than placebo at helping people solve problems. And so then I began to use it for ADHD because they had animal data indicating that it was helping the dopamine system. They had human data showing it helped the autonomic system work better. And we've seen some really amazing turnarounds, usually without any side effects of stimulants that are prescription. Now, understand, I prescribe prescription stimulants and all kinds of drugs, including antidepressants from other countries that sometimes work better than what we have with less side effects. So I will, and I've sent patients for cingulotomy. I've sent patients for vagal nerve stimulation. I've sent patients for theta burst that's not yet reimbursed by insurance. If it's appropriate, it may work. Gamma knife for OCD. It depends on what's appropriate for an individual. And also, often the patient, or especially with the child, parents may have strong ideas about what they do or don't want, including sometimes they only want prescription. However, I would say typically with children with ADHD, more parents would prefer to start with more natural things. And many of them come because their child was in that 20 or 30% that has problems with stimulants. In the last podcast, Dr. Brown talked about the three areas of executive dysfunction that get in the way of full recovery for people with ADHD. They are dyslexia, working memory deficits, 
and slow processing speed. We thought dyslexia was treated exclusively with psychosocial interventions. But Dr. Brown taught us about research on a class of drugs called racetams, which improved reading ability in children with dyslexia in a controlled trial from the 1980s. Some of the racetams are prescription medications. Others are over-the-counter. That group in Iran reported on something I had been using for years. It's actually the first class of psychotropics that was called nootropic, meaning to learn better. And the first one that was created, I think, by a Belgian chemist around 1960 is paracetam. I rarely use it because it's a huge pill. It's very hard for children to swallow. And you got to take a ton of them. And it will typically take three months for the, there was one well done study in dyslexia using paracetam versus placebo. And it takes a big dose of a bunch of these big pills for three months to show a difference from placebo. But there were other drugs that descended from paracetam. And I most often use anaracetam or primaracetam. There's also oxiracetam. And those four drugs, which are classed chemically as pyrrolidinones, for my patients, that's too much of a mouthful. I may call them racetams, but there are several thousand studies. And Keppra is derived from that basic structure. While most of the racetam drugs that Dr. Brown mentions are available over the counter, there's one that you might be familiar with as a prescription. That's Keppra. This seizure medicine goes by a generic name, levotiracetam. Dr. Brown says that he doesn't actually use it for cognition or ADHD. But I'll tell you something about this med that reminds us not to make assumptions about medications based on their class. Here's what I mean. We often think of seizure meds as impairing cognition. Think of topiramate, dopamax, carbamazepine, valproate and certainly phenobarbital. But levotiracetam has improved cognition in patients with epilepsy, and it's even being explored as a potential cognitive enhancer in dementia. Levotiracetam also improved tardive dyskinesia in a controlled trial at a dose of 500 to 3,000 milligrams a day. It was a small trial, but I've found some success with it in my practice, and the other racetams that Dr. Brown mentions, they also have evidence in tardive dyskinesia from many decades ago. So this class of medications is very interesting. It even has small studies in OCD. These anti-tardive dyskinesia and anti-OCD effects might be because these racetams have glutamatergic action through NMDA. What's great about that class is, A, they work on the NMDA system. They have hardly any side effects. There's one study in Down syndrome kids saying that some of them got a little bit agitated, but they'll get agitated on a lot of things. So those drugs are great, and the dose is much lower on Pramorastam or Anorastam, and they've been out for decades now. Next, Dr. Brown shared his favorite treatments for working memory, starting with two familiar medications for ADHD, clonidine and guanfacine. A recent study published in JAMA that's, I think, worth your readers knowing is in this study, they looked at a huge number of people being prescribed for ADHD. And what they found 
was more of them were getting guanfacine or something like that than stimulants. And that's interesting because I've used clonidine for years because I like clonidine. John Rady did some very good studies at MGH of clonidine and showing the quick release clonidine at bedtime carried over to reduce agitation the whole next day. And I was involved in research like almost 40 years ago now showing that clonidine was good for the temporal lobes and noradrenergic input to the hippocampus and helped working memory. And there's some data showing that uh, guanfacine is good for working memory, as is clonidine. My problem with guanfacine is most of the patients I put on are too sleepy all day. But Rady showed that not a patch, not sustained release clonidine at bedtime could help agitation. And also, a lot of us discovered it would help the crash when the stimulant stopped working, which for a lot of kids or adults comes in the afternoon or evening, and then they can get really irritable and have trouble going to bed. And so giving clonidine either at night or giving them early in the evening, like a bedtime dose, would help them not have a horrible crash and do better the next day. But my experience, even with clonidine, was it could show statistically significant results on working memory, but I wasn't wowed by its effect on working memory. There's several studies now showing that American ginseng is really good for working memory. I was introduced to ginseng by a medical school classmate who introduced me to Korean ginseng when we were studying for our finals and boards at the end of the first year of medical school. And I was like, oh my God, my brain is on steroids. And became interested in American ginseng. And I remember the first time I went to a big Chinese supermarket in Chinatown in New York. And I went down to the basement where all the teas were. And half of the room was different brands of American ginseng. Because they respect American ginseng for brain function. And the residents I teach, I usually tell them, you know, why don't you try American ginseng, not just coffee, if you want your brain to work better all day. How do you dose American ginseng? Yeah, that's really important. There are many brands out there. And the brand I like is from a a website called Shu Ginseng, which is spelled H is in Harry, S is in Sam, U is in Union, ginseng.com. And he has like five kinds of American ginseng. The one that patients can really feel starting to work is called Gin Max, G-I-N-M-A-X. And typically, whether it's a child or an adult, have them do two pills in the morning, two pills midday, or sometimes when they get home before homework, depending on, you know, what they're doing at school and, you know, what the parent, what the mother thinks that, you know, they should do. People can feel it work, starting to work. The other brands are good. They help, but they kind of have a slower onset. But it's like, as, as one of my patients who's a lawyer said, it's like I went from an old fashioned TV to high definition. Um, So working memory, it's going to improve. What else might you see improve with that? They solve problems more quickly. They process things a little bit better. Yeah, it's kind of like their brain can make connections better. And any warnings or tolerance or side effects with that? No, that's also one of the great things. American ginseng, even, even using it in demented patients, you can get some good results. There are several types of ginseng, Korean, Chinese, and American. All of them have evidence to improve memory in various populations. And what they all have in common is that they contain ginsinicides, which modulate acetylcholine and glutamate. 
Genocinocytes also have anti-inflammatory and neuroprotective effects in the brain. Dr. Brown has had the best experience with American ginseng, and here's what the research says. American ginseng improved working memory in several controlled trials, and the benefits were measurable after just a few hours, but they also held up in studies that lasted several months. Most of those studies were conducted in healthy adults, but ginseng also improved inattentive and hyperactive symptoms of ADHD in two small placebo-controlled trials in children. A typical dose of American ginseng is 500 to 1,000 milligrams twice a day, and look for a ginseng product with 10% ginsenicides. A good brand is Suze Ginimax, that's H-S-U-G-I-N-M-A-X, American ginseng, which is a little bit pricey. It's going to cost about a dollar to two dollars a day, depending on the dose from what I've seen on Amazon. Well, that's really interesting talking to you, Richard, because I'm always looking at the effect size in the study. And I got to share, it doesn't always match up with what I see in practice. How does that work out for you? Do you have the same experience? Totally. And I think part of the reason for that is I think when people start doing research, their enthusiasm, and often colleagues either in their specialty or related specialties, they're enthusiastic and they send patients. And I think in the beginning, sometimes you get a skewed population who's more likely to respond. Or I also feel there's a powerful Hawthorne effect. Meaning, that that means if you introduce a new program into the factory, the factory workers do better for a while. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. The Holthorn effect was discovered when managers at an electric plant in Illinois set out to figure out what type of lighting would improve worker productivity. They adjusted the lights up or down and measured the output, but the results were confounding. It seemed their productivity improved after any change in light leading to the idea that it was the increased attention from the researchers and the feedback gained by measuring their work that boosted their output rather than the light itself. And there's so many factors that go on. I mean, I did did, did NIH and drug company research with mentors of mine for years, but I still remember years later, I had a uh, a colleague called me up and he said, I got to talk to you about something. I said, well, why me? He said, you're the only one who might, I think, listen to me. He said, I'm doing research. I have a team of people who do the ratings and treat the patients. And there's one guy. It doesn't matter whether it's the active drug or placebo. His patients do worse than any of the other clinicians. He said, I don't know what to do. I said, you get rid of him. He says, well, he seems perfectly fine. He relates to me okay. He relates to his colleagues. I said, there's something about him with his patients. And he needs to be in a different kind of part of the field not taking care of patients directly without therapy or some other kind of treatment. And it's unlikely at his stage of life that he's going to go for that. Now, it sounds like what you do is read the research, the basic science, the controlled trials. But ultimately, you then try this out on yourself and in your patients. And do you see it with your eye? Do you see a difference? Is that right? i got to see a difference. Uh, You know, and, and my feeling is you can get fancy statistics that show stuff but if you can't see it more easily, I like things where you can really see they're doing something.
Richard Brown is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University and the author of over 80 peer-reviewed articles and books, including non-drug treatments for ADHD, published by W.W. Norton. He has a private practice in New York and is also a certified teacher of yoga and meditation. Read Dr. Brown's full interview in our August 2022 issue online and get $30 off your subscription with the promo code PODCAST. Want to support the podcast? Share an episode with a friend. Text it to them with a share arrow in your podcast app or write a review in the podcast store. We read every one of them. The Carlat Report continues to operate without receiving a single dime from the pharmaceutical industry. 